I think it's uh, quite important to now also describe the next steps of the meditation, next steps of the meditative absorptions, and how they again counteract our difficulties. We have five hindrances and we have five factors of the meditation. Each one of the factors of the meditation contacts one of the hindrances. The two important ones that we have already discussed, the first two are just meditative factors anyway, and the next two of the first and second jhana are counteracting ill will and sensual desire. The third step, the third absorption, is one of contentment and peacefulness. Having experienced joy and having been able to stay with it, which means for a good period of time, the mind is contented. It has received or achieved what it has been actually aiming for. It has been joyful and it hasn't had any disturbance and it hasn't had to relate, didn't have to relate to any outside matter for its joy, so it's completely contented. The feeling of contentment is the first thing that arises in the third jhana as a um, result of the second, just as the second is a result of the first. First one, delightful sensation, brings joy, joy brings contentment. The first one is a result of concentration, and concentration brings purification, and therefore it's possible to experience the pure states of mind, which all of us have, and every single person in the world has them, but unfortunately very few people take advantage of that. To take advantage of that which we have within is the most sensible thing to do. So the, we have a cause and effect, which is a very important thing to notice. It's a third step of insight, and I'll get to that third step of insight eventually. Since there are eight steps of the calm and twelve steps of insight, it's highly unlikely that I can talk about all of them in these few days, but I'll certainly get to the third step of insight, which is cause and effect, and which can be seen right here, even in the jhanas. The jhanas are not just calm. Each one of them, if treated correctly, brings insight. An intelligent mind, which all of us have, 
would never abstain from gaining insight from its own experiences, which means an understood experience. Experiences are very well if we don't understand them we don't really have much benefit from them. So we always have both working for us. We always have calm and insight working for us. To whatever extent we're able to actualize it. So the causes, the cause, first cause is concentration. Effect is purification. Becomes a cause again. Each effect becomes a cause again. The cause being purification, the effect is the delightful sensation. Cause of the delightful sensation, the effect is joy. Cause of joy, the effect is contentment. Contentment in the mind leads to peacefulness. Discontent is the greatest cause for lack. Whenever we are discontented, and most people are almost continuously discontented with whatever they have, whatever they are, whatever the world is like, that is a lack of peacefulness. Now, discontent is a hindrance, is an, an unskillful emotion. To see the world the way it really is, is insight. But it doesn't have to be caused, it doesn't have to cause discontent. What it needs to cause in order to help us is an understanding of an underlying reality. So the third step in the jhanas <coughs> contentment leading to peacefulness and that is the meditation subject it starts out with that feeling of contentment and goes to a feeling of being at peace I have mentioned already that we need to minimize our ego idea our self will in order to get to the absorptions or in order to experience them the self will has absolutely no place in that but what remains in those absorptions in those first three is an observer observer who knows what's going on and this observer realizes now contentment, peacefulness. And this observer also is the one who realizes that there must be no self-will in this. The observer is also the one who notices that this too is impermanent at the end and is the one who knows how one got in there so one can repeat it. Contentment and peacefulness counteracts our force hindrance effectively, which is called restlessness and worry. It can also be called discontent, 
because discontent causes restlessness and worry. But it's usually called restlessness and worry. Now, restlessness is a human quality which only completely disappears at full enlightenment. And that's why everybody's going from here to there. The freeways are completely full of cars. All the airlines are booked out. The resort hotels, we can't find a room. Everybody's going somewhere. Constant movement. Sometimes when one sees all these cars, I suppose other people do too, wonders where they are going. It doesn't matter. Going somewhere. The restlessness is much more apparent also in our everyday activity. When we've been sitting too long, we would like to get up. When we've been standing, we'd like to sit down. When we've been sitting, maybe we'd like to lie down. After we've been lying down a while, we want to get up again. We've been reading a book, we want to put it aside. We've been watching TV, we want to turn it off. We've been talking on the phone, we want to hang up. We're constantly wanting to shift. And sometimes we can experience that as impatience. Because we can't really relax into what is happening at the moment. So we experience impatience with ourselves or others. But it's all due to this restlessness. Because the restlessness is due to the fact that we haven't found complete and total fulfillment. If we have found complete and total fulfillment, what is there to be restless about? In this particular meditation situation, the restlessness is counteracted at the time of meditation it is not uprooted because restlessness is caused by the illusion of the individuality and substance that we give to our me and this me wants to have a situation in which it is constantly being catered for. It's impossible. Nobody can find a situation where the ego is constantly being catered to. And therefore, we try to find the next situation. And the next, and the next, and the next. This is the underlying cause of restlessness. And it therefore only completely disappears at full enlightenment. But naturally, it gets lessened and minimized at every stage of development. And impatience also disappears gradually, slowly, and is reflected then in patience. The two belong together. So that we find through this meditation, through the third one, 
we have um, the most effective antidote, not considering the past moments of Nibbana, against restlessness. Because here we have actually experienced what we wanted, and for the time of the meditation we feel fulfilled. The yearning which we may have been aware of that there should be something more in our lives has momentarily been fulfilled. The yearning is abates at that time and we are peaceful. Worry is always about the future. It's constantly concerned with what's going to happen. And it also needs insight to recognize its foolishness. Because the one who is worrying today about what's going to happen tomorrow is not going to be the one that's going to have it happen to them tomorrow. So we need to recognize the total fluidity of ourselves in order to recognize the no-sense connection to worry. Worry has no connection to any rationality. It is strictly an emotion. An emotion which can never be um, logically or in any other way proven to be correct. It's just emotional. And it's an emotion which some people have a lot of trouble with. It's very difficult for them to get away from it. Some people are so um, imbued with worry about the future that they don't even know what it's like to be contented, even momentarily. They do know that there's something happening inside which is pushing them, pressuring them, and they'd like to get rid of it. The third jhana works against it, it's an antidote, because we have to be right here now in order to experience it, and because we're contented, there's nothing to worry about. Naturally, it doesn't uproot it, but everything that we can do to lessen and minimize these difficulties are already a help on the way. Because we know that it's possible to be without restlessness and worry, we have experienced it, and therefore we know what it feels like, highly desirable. So we would probably, from that experience, at least take away the determination to lessen restlessness and worry also in daily life. The Buddha compared that to being a slave, or being pushed around by it being pushed around into the future, which is never going to be the way we imagine it, and we're being pushed around to change, to doing something different, not being contented in the present situation. The antidote that he described, prescribed in daily life, was to know more about the Dhamma, to learn more about the teaching, which is easily enough available, 
And besides having noble friends and noble conversations, also to know and be in contact with wise people. That may present difficulties. Not that many wise people around. <laughs> but at least one can make an effort. A wise person is someone who has already seen some of the absolute truth and is no longer fooled by the temptations of the world. The temptations of the world are extremely strong. When the Buddha was not the Buddha yet, but the Bodhisattva, was sitting under the famous Bodhi tree and what is now Bodhgaya, and had made the determination to sit there until he would become enlightened, even if his flesh would rot from his bones, slightly longer than 45 minutes. <laughs> Even then, temptations still arose. The story says, and this is just a symbolic story, of course, and not to be taken as, as said, that Mara, who is the tempter and uh, compar comparable to the devil, but more the temptation which exists all around us and therefore within us, Mara sent out his three most beautiful daughters. They're called Lopa, Dosa, Moha. Lopa is greed, Dosa is hate, and Moha is delusion. That's their names. And they are supposed to be the most beautiful women that have ever existed and will ever exist. In other words, our hate and greed and delusion is depicted as something that is so beautiful that we want it and that we are deluded into thinking that if we have it, we will be happy. Now, these three beautiful ladies appeared to the Buddha, to the Bodhisattva at that time, and said to him, what are you sitting there under this tree, a black-haired youth still in the prime of life? Why don't you come and play with us? That will really make you happy. So he said, go away. And uh, shooed them away. And so they talked to each other and said, oh, well, maybe we're a bit young for him. We'll make ourselves look a little bit older. So they made themselves look a little bit older and reappeared and tried to entice him away again. And again he shooed them away. And he, they did the same thing a third time. And when he wouldn't get up from his seat, they went back to their father and said, can't get that one. <laughs> and, and the story says that Mara, in his fury, uh, dissolved into fire. Of course, he came back together again very quickly because we've all got him sitting in our heart. It's a very similar story 
to what Jesus uh, experienced when he went into the desert and said, Satan, get thee behind me. These are very similar stories which may or not, may or not, may or may not be actually true, but they're certainly telling us something, and that's what they're for. They're telling us that temptation is always with us. It's all around us, and if we are not aware of ourselves, we don't even know that we're being tempted. We are not even aware of the fact that this is happening. So, a wise person would be one who has at least seen that much and can help one with one's own spiritual path. To be a slave to restlessness and worry makes life tense and stressful. The stress of having to change constantly, to not be contented with what one has and what one is, is the cause for disharmony within. The experience in the third jhana of this contentment and peacefulness gives the mind the understanding that this is possible. It exists. It's within. All one has to do is get concentrated. And knowing that, one already has a sort of cushion, a salve for the difficulties, for the distress and the anxiety that everybody experiences. It's there. One actually knows the way. One might not have got there yet, but one knows what to do. That alone is already a great benefit. There is in the um, in the commentaries there is a description of the first four jhanas in a way of a simile which is quite apt and makes it easy to recognize. It says it's like a person who is wandering in the desert without any water and is completely dried out and thirsty. That's us when we yearn for inner fulfillment, when we have a longing for something more in the heart, but we don't know where it is. So we're in this desert and no water. And then this person sees in the distance a pool of water and excitement and the light arise. That's the first jhana. The first jhana is a little bit exciting. It appears to be happening up here somewhere, which it doesn't, of course. Mm -hmm. But it is mm -hmm. and it has a certain excitement in it. Particularly if it's happening for the first, second, third or fourth time. In the future, one gets so used to it, one hardly pays attention to it. But, just like this person in the desert, seeing this pool of water for the first time gets all excited. 
if he then comes back and sees it again, he doesn't get excited, he knows it's there. So the first time he's all excited and delighted. Then he goes, gets going, goes near to the pool and stands at the edge. And now he's very joyful because he knows he can now drink and be really fulfilled. And that's the second one. And then he steps into the pool and drinks. And now he gets contented. Contented and peaceful. Because he got what he wanted. And then he goes to the nearest tree and lies down in the shade and rests. And that's the fourth meditative absorption, the fourth jhana. So from the third one, the peacefulness is still an emotion which is being observed. Certainly a lovely emotion. Peacefulness has nothing better. And it, all of these jhanas can be described as emotional states. Also the first one, even though it has a physical connotation, it's still the delight in it is an emotional state. So we could truly say that they're all emotional states. And that's why it's so important to be in touch with one's emotions. And that's why also the sleeping helps one very much to get in touch with sensation and emotion in order to have that pathway open. The third one, being peaceful as an emotion, then goes, moves into a deeper state of peacefulness. It sometimes feels as if the mind is dropping. It isn't, of course. But it has sometimes that feeling as if it's dropping down. I'd like to compare it to make it clearer as if there was a deep well. And at the beginning, in the third jhana, one sits at the top of the well and is quite peaceful. Sits on the rim and dangles with one's legs. And then, as one experiences the peacefulness more and more one goes down into the well slowly, gently, further down the bottom is the end of the force now even going down into that well there are different stages of that peacefulness and all of them can be described as the fourth jhana the peacefulness at this time does not feel like an emotion but just feels like a complete rest. Probably the best way to describe it, just like this person is now lying down under the tree and resting from his uh, endeavors to uh, get his thirst taken care of. He's resting. And this is what we need to do. We need to rest from all that thinking we've been doing for the past decades. Past lifetimes, one can say, 
but mostly the past decade. We need a rest from that. Now, when we sleep, we don't get it. We dream. The mind is active as ever. So, although the body gets a nice rest and next morning feels quite energetic, the mind didn't get a thing. The only way the mind's ever going to get a rest is in the jhana or any meditation which has become concentrated. Even if it's just concentrated for a few minutes, that's its rest. But of course, the fourth jhana, being a deeper state of peacefulness, gives a deeper rest. It's like taking a nap or having a full night's sleep. If we're concentrated for a few minutes, we're taking a nap. Please don't. I don't mean it that way. It's, it's only a comparison. <laughs> but if we get to the fourth jhana, we have the ability and the potential then to regenerate the mind's capacity to its fullest. And in order to really see absolute truth, to see a totally different self and world, that mind strength is needed. You see, the strength of mind that we all have is perfectly sufficient for making a living, for looking after ourselves in daily life, looking after a house or a shop, or an office, whatever we're looking after, a business, a family. But it's also distressed and anxious and fearful and worried and angry and it has all those uh, hindrances also. And it's not strong enough to go into the depths of an absolute truth which looks totally different from the relativity in which we live. It's very nearly con it's connected to it, but it has totally different connotations. That's why we need strength of mind. That's why we need a mind which has been able to regenerate the energy to become strong, clear, and unperturbed. And the fourth jhana does all that. It becomes strong, clear, and unperturbed. And with that kind of mind, we then can see things differently. See things as they really are. In Pali, Yata Bhutanyana Dasana, which is the last step of insight before we can transcend our worldly condition. I haven't got to the description of that yet. May not. But so the benefit we get is so immeasurable and has so much content for us that it's a pity that most people who do meditate don't do it regularly. 
the only way to do it is to do it regularly and to give it enough time this is a matter of time and has to I'm sure you've all noticed already that your minds have become much less concerned with the world much less concerned with outside things far more peaceful since you've come here one has to have time for the mind to settle down so one has to give oneself time and has to have patience and perseverance I compare the mind to a pond into which a child is throwing stones the stones make rings in the water so the water is constantly churned up and we can't see anything in it until the child stops throwing stones the stones which are being thrown into our mind are our sense contacts which in daily life are quite enormous it's an enormous um, assault on our senses in the ordinary way of living if one lives out in the country where there are nothing but meadows and trees the assault on the senses is less but certainly not disappearing it's always there and that's why one of the factors of purification which I will dis describe in detail is guarding our senses which is difficult in this kind of society as long as we are having these sense inputs they are always like stones in that pond with rings around it the mind is not quiet it can't be quiet because it has that input and if you have tried what I suggested yesterday to see see something and then notice feeling perception and reaction you will know by now that it's not our senses that make all the turmoil it's the mind the mind has to describe it so the turmoil which arises within us is not coming from the eye and the ear and the nose and the mouth and the body but it comes from the mind which describes those contacts that we have and since the contacts are constantly there our mind has a difficult time to quieten down and because of that very few people very few people in the world are able to touch upon this inner reality which all of us carry around with us which all of us are actually probably subconsciously yearning for I would say that everyone who starts meditation has had an idea that that's what they're looking for even though they didn't know what it was didn't know its name didn't know it it actually could be done but there must be something and I would say also that many people who don't meditate also yearning for that and try to find it somewhere else because the offers are innumerable and the promises are also innumerable but it's all in here it's all there and everyone who's ever got near it knows about it and as one gets near it and then uh, experiences it 
it becomes a natural way of being. Naturally only in the meditation is it strong. But outside of meditation it doesn't leave one completely. The experience itself leaves one to 95% of that. But the knowledge of it doesn't leave one. And therefore one carries within a great jewel. And this great jewel is always available when one sits down. And all the things that the world has to offer do not seem so wonderful anymore because they have never one of them have, it, have they produced that which we can get through the concentration. None of the things of the world, none of the people of the world, nothing has ever done that, what we can do ourselves. These first four are called the Rupa Jhanas. The word Rupa means body. I said that already. It's a fine material meditative absorption. A bit long and cumbersome in English, a little easier in Pali, Rupa Jhanas. Spelled R-U-P-A and then J-H-A-N-A-S. Actually, without the S. S is English. <laughs> no S. <laughs> and all of that is the foundation for a mind which has enough solidity so that it cannot be overthrown by outside conditions and cannot be overthrown by public opinion it cannot be shifted about by others it knows its own stability and its own worth now that is not connected to self having experienced the last one the fourth one the observer becomes extremely small it's almost non-existent it's still there but it's almost non-existent and because of that the practitioner knows afterwards that this isn't me nor mine this is just a mind state which is available because the observer has become so minute that the ego idea of this is me and mine cannot take hold in that particular instance. That does not mean that now the ego idea of me and mine after the fourth jhana disappears. But it does mean something. It means that the Buddha has said that one can actually become enlightened after any of the jhanas. Now, I would say that even after the first one, if the mind is concentrated enough, certainly the fourth one, because the mind at that time is not only quiet and happy, 
But it also knows from its own experience that the less me there is, the more happiness there is. It no longer has any doubt about that. It doesn't question that aspect of the teaching anymore. It doesn't question it well if I if if I'm not there, who's meditating? Such a question no longer arises. Because it has seen for itself through its own experience that this state of mind is possible without hanging on to it and saying this is mine. So at that time it is very beneficial and very useful to inquire into where is this me? Having already taken one's body apart into its bits and pieces, I hope you've all done that, and seen that it's neither the gallbladder nor the liver nor the kidneys nor the intestines nor are it the bones nor whatever else you can find in there, one now also realizes it doesn't fit in the mind which is so peaceful. So this becomes then a springboard for gaining access to absolute truth. It doesn't necessarily mean that one can immediately do it, but it certainly gives one the necessary impetus to look to look in the right direction. So there the fourth jhana is of the greatest um, value. It has another value and that relates back to the four supreme emotions. Now if you remember I've told you that the Buddha said there are only four emotions which are worth having and they do include things such as gratitude and helpfulness and uh, care and concern all under this uh, first heading of metta, love, which I described in detail. And the other three being compassion, joy with others and equanimity. Now the fourth jhana induces equanimity and equanimity is called the crown jewel of all emotions. Equanimity has as its far enemy restlessness, anxiety, worry, upset and as its near enemy indifference. And very often the two are completely mixed up with each other. One of the Buddha's great abilities was the precision of language. And one of his directives to monks and nuns when they were teaching was precision of language the precision which would counteract the misunderstandings. 
they do not prevent them totally, but they certainly help. So we need to have a look at the difference between equanimity and indifference. They are called, they're called the near enemy because it appears outwardly to be the same. A person who is indifferent appears to be equanimous, even-minded. But what actually has happened to such a person is that such a person has become afraid of his or her own emotions because they have been, probably in the past, been very strong and unpredictable. And so this person was sort of cheated by that emotion. There was a strong emotion and no result or bad result. So then there is this wish not to have those emotions of great passion or great hate. And not knowing how to go about that, such a person would make a, like a barrier around the heart. And ma many people run around with such a barrier around their heart. One of the things that happens that a person like that can be aware of the fact that they have done that is that they feel like a spectator. They don't feel like they're part and parcel of what's going on. They feel like they're constantly just um, watching the proceedings, the watching what other people are doing, but they're not in it completely. Now that comes from the fact that they've put a sort of a barrier around themselves so that the heart can motion and it needs the openness of the heart because the mind can't do it. We can't think first, second, third, fourth jhana. We've got to feel it. So in order to be able to get to the concentrations which bring the benefits which I've outlined, we have to have the openness of the heart. So indifference if we find that in ourselves, we can see that it is nothing but trying to have a secure place. But there is no security in this world. Everything is constantly moving. All is fluid. Constant fluidity. So there's nowhere to sit and say, okay, I've got it. This is the little corner I'm going to keep. Nobody get in here. Or stay out. This is my corner. It doesn't happen that way. We can make ourselves a room, a physical room, but we can't make ourselves a corner where the heart is not touched. And if we do, we're missing out on the best part of life. Because life cannot be thought out it's got to be lived. And as we live it, we experience it. And as we experience it, we feel it. But equanimity is 
the crown jewel of all emotions because it is that emotion which feels at ease with whatever happens. It arises out of insight, but it is greatly supported by the fourth jhana. Because that peacefulness, which is very often described as equanimity, but it is, uh, in my opinion, a wrong description, because that's an emotion, and we get the result is equanimity. The actual feeling in the fourth jhana is one of complete rest, but the result is equanimity. And that goes comes about because we have found a place in ourselves, in our own heart and mind, which is totally protected. All we have to do, sit down, cross our legs, close our eyes, and do it. And there is total protection there. So we no longer feel threatened, because we know we can go there. And we also have seen, to some extent at least, that the me and mine idea is detrimental to our own happiness and we're therefore not, not that grasping of it. We're not that attached to it anymore. So we have found this place of ease and equanimity arises out of that. And equanimity means that we also have gained insight into the impermanence, the changing nature of everything that exists. Now, when we have gained insight into the changing nature, the fluidity, the transparency, then whatever happens, whether it's very wonderful and we can enjoy it we don't need to keep it to try and keep it because we can't keep it anyway and if it's pretty awful and we'd rather it didn't happen we can see that it also has a changing nature and it's going to move on so we can see this fluidity in everything that happens and we do not have to try and grasp that which is so pleasant or try to resist that which is so unpleasant. We just flow with it. We have all the necessary words, but how to do it is a different question. If we feel ourselves to be fluid, it's easy to flow. But as long as we don't feel ourselves to be fluid, we can't do it. It's just a hope and a prayer. At least it's that much. It's better than nothing. But when we can feel in our own un, uh, inquiry into ourselves that every thought moves and changes, every feeling moves and changes, the body constantly moving and changing within, without our outward movement, Everything we've ever felt, it's all gone. 
Everything we've ever done, the action, it's all gone. Everything we've ever thought, all gone. Where is this solid me? Having that kind of inquiry and a little bit of insight into that produces more of equanimity. Equanimity is daily peacefulness. Fourth jhana is meditative peacefulness. Daily peacefulness is what everybody would like to have. I don't think there's anybody that doesn't want that. But sometimes people think the word equanimity denotes that they're not supposed to enjoy themselves. It's a constant recurring objection. It doesn't mean that at all. Why should it? The precision of language and the precision of thought speaks against it. Equanimity does not say don't enjoy yourself. What it does mean, though, is that enjoyment is also short-lived. It comes and it goes. It's fine when it's there. It's fine when it's gone. There is a teaching by the Buddha which explains equanimity in quite an interesting way. It's called the Five Noble Powers. And in Pali, that's called the Arya Idis. Arya is noble, and Idi is power. In Sanskrit Siddhi, which I'm sure you've heard or read somewhere. And when the Buddha, he often did that, he did word plays. When the Buddha was asked about Siddhi, he said, and in Pali the same word is Idi, he said, they are not these supernatural things that people can do like you know hopping from here to over there or um, uh, lifting up from the ground or walking through walls the real noble powers are something else and then he explained what the noble powers really are and he did that many times because in his society in the Indian society of his day, exactly as today, supernatural powers were highly regarded and considered to be a sign of enlightenment, which he said was not so. So the real noble powers are like this. When we see something that we think is extremely delightful to see in it also the non-delightful which means if we see something that we think is really wonderful to remember immediately that that too is impermanent and if it's a thing an object that it needs cleaning polishing caring for insuring replacing fixing all those things of which we are familiar with. If we see something that we think is extremely undelightful, very obnoxious, 
to see in it also the delightful. How also that applies to people. If we see someone who we think is so delightful, we've got to have her or him. To see the impermanence, to see the difficulty, to see the dukkha. And if we see somebody who we think is just terrible, to see in that person also that which is lovable. Maybe effort, maybe patience, maybe care, maybe having been loved by his or her mother. Anything good that we can see in that person. Immediately changing our attitude towards the person or the object by seeing that which is also good in it, which is lovely and very acceptable. The next one, the next two are actually more or less the same. The Buddha, well aware of our inability to remember anything, repeated himself many times. <laughs> to read his discourses, one has to become used to the repetition. To see in the delightful both the delightful and the not delightful, to see in the not delightful both the delightful and the not delightful. In other words, to always be aware of both sides so that hate in one instance and greed in the other cannot arise. And then those are four. And then the fifth one, that for the one who is already enlightened, there is nothing that is so delightful or so non-delightful that hate or greed would arise. In other words, it's a natural outflow of equanimity, which is only for the person who has uh, perfected that. But the first four are for us, and they are an instruction, a guideline, how to practice and uh, cultivate equanimity, which is done in daily life. Without the support system of the jhanas, we'd have a dreadfully difficult time with it. I'm sure everybody knows that. It's very difficult to remain equanimous in the face of those things which we don't like. And it's maybe not quite as difficult, but almost as difficult to remain equanimous in the face of those things which we really want to have. The fourth jhana gives us that support system. The daily practice of those four things, to see both sides in everything, gives us the daily um, ability to work on that. It means gaining peacefulness in daily life. But it means more than that. Equanimity can be compared to the water pond without 
the mud without the waves without the rings of the stones just clear and if we are standing in clear and unperturbed water we can look below the water surface to the bottom and we can see what's at the bottom of that pond it's the same here with equanimity in the mind we can see below the surface of human life of that which we think is so important and see beyond or below that and see the reality which is underlying all that so equanimity is a must as an emotion for gaining freedom and liberation without it the mind is perturbed like a water which has waves in it our emotions are our greatest perturbance because they are like waves which go over us and we can only see those waves then the water of the waves is all we can see because we are completely engulfed by our emotions so the help which we get through the meditation is indispensable it can't be done without it we can retreat into indifference but that too doesn't work at all times it's a protective system which is not foolproof because if the matter becomes urgent or important indifference also breaks apart so it isn't really the kind of help that one thinks it might be fantasy doesn't help either because that too breaks apart or the mind goes off on tangents reality is the only thing that will keep us with the feet on the ground the buddha was the greatest pragmatist that ever was he's often called a pessimist he was neither an optimist nor a pessimist he was a realist he knew exactly what was going on probably the first psychologist that ever lived knew exactly what was going on and showed the way out he said there's only one thing i teach and that's suffering and its end to reach now it doesn't mean that he's teaching us suffering what it means is that he's teaching us that we've got it and that we don't that's useless to resist it it's there but there's a way out the pathway that he has shown is so clear and so detailed and so exact that one never needs to wonder what to do the only thing that happens is that people don't want to do it what is there to say about that if they don't want to do it they don't want to do it that's fine in the Buddha's time there was no different I mean we just because this is two and a half thousand years ago doesn't mean that anything has changed the only thing that has changed is our technology remarkable I must say but has anyone become any happier because we had a man on the moon 
anyone really happier since then? doesn't make any difference, does it? In fact, I would say that some of our technology is a great disturbance. I refuse to have a telephone in my room. I can't stand this dingling thing that somebody, <laughs> somebody can talk to me any old time they want to. Maybe I have something much more important to do at the time. So our technology is totally different. And it's yet to, to be understood whether it's really a help. It does make life easier in many instances, that's true but it also makes it more complicated in other instances. But essentially, nothing has changed. Human beings are human beings and always have been. There was a man in the Buddha's time who came to see him, crying, eyes were full of tears, sobbing, and the Buddha said to him, what's the matter? He said, I just lost my only beloved son. So the Buddha said, what we love brings sorrow. And so the man said, what nonsense. How can you say such a thing? And wandered off and told to his friend, said, you know this Buddha, he says what you love brings sorrow. That's nonsense. And the friend said, but you're having it. It's, you are, you are actually experiencing that. The man said, ah, it's all, it's all wrong. So it even happened in the Buddha's time. So there's no surprise that it happens now. Because certainly the Buddha's strength and energy would have been far more uh, effective than anything that is around now. But the guidelines are there, exactly. And being able to follow even just a few steps on the path brings about a great change already. The feeling of joy that one has found a path. Now this feeling of joy is not the same as the joy in the meditation in the second jhana. In English we only have the one word in Pali there are two different words. This joy in Pali is Pamoja, the meditative joy is Sukha. Now this joy has been said by the Buddha to be an essential aspect of one's inner reality before one can meditate. If we don't have that joy which arises out of the confidence in the teaching and the gratitude that a, a pathway is there to find that which one has either consciously or subconsciously looked for, if that joy is missing, we do not have sufficient mind strength to be concentrated. If the joy is there, and this is why I've been saying arouse gratitude in yourself before you start meditating, appreciate yourself, have joy in the heart before you start meditating, every time, every sit. 
Because obviously, if one doesn't know very much about the Buddha's teaching, one cannot have total confidence and joy in it. But gratitude or something can be aroused in whichever way one can. But the Buddha's guidelines were such that the first step is to recognize dukkha. And I'll tell you all about that tonight. (laughs) The second step is to find this trust, confidence, that this is understandable and lovable. And then joy, the joy of doing it. Not the joy of accomplishment. That also comes, but that's not necessary. That's again achievement syndrome, that joy of doing it. That is so important to make the meditation really happen. Knowing this is the path. I found one. Great. I'll go along it. It makes sense, and therefore I can fall into it. I don't have to rummage around my head if I can find something better. I'll do it. Then the joy really helps one to go along there. These are, this is a worldly joy, and the other one is a meditative joy. And they feel quite different. The meditative joy is very sweet and quite, and very fulfilling. The um, worldly joy is more contentment, a contentment and um, a feeling of trust and a feeling of um, mental energy. Joy brings mental energy. Non-joy saps energy. Meditation needs energy. I have explained the first four jhanas and I have explained the first and the fourth of the supreme emotions. And I think that's enough for this morning. If you have any questions, this is the time. Yes, it's a it's a point, a point along the inside path. I think I understand what you're saying. The PT is the pleasurable sensation. That's it. PT is pleasurable sensation. Period. No more. The reaction to it is joy. Right, that's the next one. That's the second one. Sukha. And that's, I mean, you can't have anything else except joy. I mean, it's not quite, it's not possible to have any other reaction. Sometimes people uh, uh, create something in themselves that they may have heard, uh, oh, this is, uh, you get attached to this. 
so they're afraid of it. Then they have that kind of reaction. Well, according to the Buddha's teaching, that one should bathe in it. One should be totally covered in that pleasurable sensation. One should, it's like taking a bath in it. In the Majjhima Nikaya, in the Middle End sayings, in the uh, discourse number 61, he says, this is a pleasure I will allow myself. And he wasn't just talking about the first one, he was talking about all eight. Um, so, the, the, the right thing to do with the pleasurable sensation is to completely be covered with it. And the reaction of joy is the next step. Is that what you were asking? Are you saying that when you have pain and you concentrate on the pain, you can then go and concentrate on the breath better? Or do you stay on the pain? Yes, that's the, that is the reaction of it's just an unpleasant feeling. I don't have to pay attention to it. I can go back to the breath. That's fine. But before I get to that point, I realize that if I use the pain as an object, I, I somehow have to come to some kind of a resolving Mm-hmm. Well, I was advocating to use that to understand the four aggregates of the mind. I don't think you were here when I was explaining that. Yes. I was explaining that the touch contact is the first sense contact which is happening in this case that from that comes a feeling as from all sense contacts in this case it's an unpleasant one there are only three kinds pleasant, unpleasant and neutral and then comes the perception which says pain and then comes the reaction which says I don't like it or I'm going to sit through it or I'm going to show them or I'm going to show myself or I'm really going to do it or I really hate it or whatever the reaction may be and this is our pre-programmed printout. 
which happens day after day after day, moment after moment, with all our sense contact. And having experienced that with the unpleasant sensation of the sitting, which is very easy to experience because we are, um, we can really take those four bits apart, we can then, which I also said, go out and do it with seeing something. It's exactly the same thing. It is a very, very helpful and useful way of learning how a human being functions. Now, obviously, we can also look at this pain and say it's only unpleasant feeling. I don't have to attend to it. I go back to the breath. That's fine, too. That's uh, very good. We can also put our attention on it and learn impermanence from it and changeability because it's not solid as it appears to be, but it is moving. It has movement in it constantly moving. That is also very helpful. But the one thing which I totally not only discourage but deny as useful is to sit there and dislike it. We've already got enough dislikes. We don't have to add another one. To dislike it or to prove something by sitting with it. The only thing that is useful is to either learn the four khandhas, the four mental aggregates from it, to realize or to realize it's just an unpleasant feeling. I do not have to react. I can go back to the breath if I can. Or to see its impermanence, to see its movement in it. And having put the attention on that movement, it's quite likely that it may dissolve into nothingness. And all of that is very useful and helpful. But to dislike it, to not like the meditation because of it is very unwholesome and not beneficial at all. So I discourage that very much. Yes. Certainly. Um, yes, the, one would say practically always. But the Buddha also instructed that we can deliberately let go of the one we're at and go to the next one. We do not have to wait for good luck. We can always go to the next one deliberately. That's why I say Stay on each one at least 10 minutes without looking at the watch. Um, when I say 10 minutes, it's the only way I know how to describe a chunk of time, right? <laughs> I, I don't mean that you have to look now as 10 minutes because it's totally useless. Um, and with the first one, the joy is already there. So it's a matter of changing one's focus from the sensation to the emotion. It's changing the focus, letting the sensation go in the background, not so important anymore, go to the emotion. Now, when the joy is there, the contentment is in the offing. It's a sort of a, um, coming. And so we can also, after joy is an important one, 15 minutes or so, 
drop that and realize what is happening within which is contentment, peacefulness and from the third to the fourth it's a matter of letting go of the awareness of this contentment and letting the peacefulness deepen so we can do it quite deliberately and it's very necessary to know each step on the way and um, it is also a matter of recognizing that each one has a more a more refined one that's coming they are getting more refined as we go on so we are, are going to the more refined state Anything else? Yes. Oh, the fourth one. The fourth one is the first one is the initial application, then comes the continued application, then comes the delightful, the delight, then comes joy. There, that's the fourth one the joy right and the the joy which we experience in the uh, the the fifth one is that what you want to know the fourth is the joy the fifth is one pointedness one pointedness which is part and parcel of all meditation And one-pointedness is part and parcel of all meditation, even if it's not jhana, because you can't meditate without one-pointedness, even if it's only one second, it has to be there. Anything else? Yes. No, I'm sure you haven't. Well, because you want something. Yeah. Well, drop it. <laughs> you see, it's um, it's been a, um, a question, but the question is actually totally unnecessary. The Buddha went out and taught this, so obviously, if he did it, that's the way to do it, right? There has been this question in people's minds very few people's minds because mo- most people don't do it and don't teach it whether when you get told that this is what happens that people may then either imagine it or wish for it but the experience has shown that the actual teaching of it makes it possible for at least twice as many people to get there but the thing to do is to drop everything and just concentrate. That's all. Drop the whole idea, drop everything. I mean, in the jhanas you have to drop everything too. Otherwise you can't be there. 
Right. Well, <laughs> well, that's a very good response. <laughs> I wouldn't knock that. <laughs> yes. That too is, <laughs> has been a, a matter of uh, disagreement or discussion maybe, disagreement too strong. Uh, there has been a school of thought for many, many years that one has to have perfect sila, which means perfect moral conduct, before even sitting down to meditate. And unfortunately, those people that did that stayed strictly with the intellectual understanding they didn't get really into it properly. Because when you can meditate, your moral conduct becomes habitual. They help each other. You can't expect to be perfect before you meditate. You can meditate and it helps the moral conduct. Of course, the loving-kindness is an essential aspect. Again, we don't can't expect to be perfect. Everybody has some loving kindness. Everybody has loved somebody at some time. So that little bit then is used and maybe extended and expanded. So whatever we've got, we throw it in a pot and use it. All our abilities. <laughs> and as we use them, the more we use these abilities, the more they become. And as the meditation gets better, the rest gets better too. It's sort of all together. Sometimes the Noble Eightfold Path is also misunderstood as if it was a ladder going step after step after step. It's not. It's an eight-lane highway. And you, you go along all eight lanes. <laughs> yes. why some of the teachers who have good meditative skills do not have good moral conduct. Uh, yes, I just repeated it because I wasn't quite sure what you said. Um, why, uh, I think you should read this book called um, uh, the, Tur the Turning of the Wheel by Sandy Boucher. I think she's got it all in there. Yeah, well, she's got it all in there. <laughs> I have no idea why they're doing it. <laughs> I can't, I can't, I have no idea. I don't know. I don't, maybe they don't think it's bad moral conduct. I have no idea. Maybe they got confused. Who knows? It's not so difficult to get confused in this world. 